I'm Elena Salinas, and this is the Women in Tech Show, a show where women in tech talk about technology. Today's guest is Val Head, UI animation pro, designer, and web animation consultant. Val talks about how Disney animation principles can be applied in web animation and how this can lead to web animations with more character and personality. We talked about how to create effective web animations and what aspects of animation can lead to poor performance. Val also explained animation capabilities in CSS and in JavaScript. And at the end, we had a really interesting discussion about the future of web animation. If you have any feedback, you can write a review on iTunes or send me a tweet at TechWomenShow. Val Head, UI Animation Pro, designer and web animation consultant, is joining us this evening from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Val, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Hi, thanks for having me. You're the first person that I heard talk about the intersection between Disney animation principles and web animation. When I think Disney animation, I think the classics like Little Mermaid, Lion King, which yeah. all involved drawing on paper, making storyboards. And when I think web animation, I think unresponsive, buggy websites. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being completely honest here. What aspects of traditional Disney animation can be applied to web animation? I'm sorry you mostly run into buggy, horrible web animation. That's terrible. There's definitely some good stuff out there. But you know, like anything on the web, there's also bad stuff out there. We can't, sadly, we can't stop them from doing that. One of the things that, that the way the Disney principles apply is when Disney came up with these principles, they, they're kind of regarded or called the, like the 12 classic principles of animation. A lot of other animation studios talk about them too. And when Disney came up with them originally, it was a way to teach their new animators how to make their animations expressive before Disney came up with all this stuff or before Disney really started in on animation, a lot of the animation back then was very technical. It was like, look, this can happen. And Disney, their kind of take on animation was like, what if we tried to make this feel like it had emotion? What if we tried to tell a story? So most of those principles are all about how to express certain feelings or certain physicalities or even just like certain moods and emotions with animation, which when we're doing UI animation, like, we have brands that have messages, we have a story we're telling, we have some sort of feeling we want to convey. So that's where the overlap is, is we can use a lot of those same principles to figure out how to make these things that are like, you know, when we're making like buttons or form fields move or animate on screen, like we all know it's just a screen. <laughs> There's no real depth. They're not really like moving in space, but we can create that feeling of having actual weight and mass and having an actual space that we're moving in by following some of those Disney principles. It's a way to kind of approach animation as more of an expressive thing than just like a move that over there, okay, done. You know, thinking about why it's moving and how it's moving. And one of the aspects that you said translates easily on web from Disney animation is involving physics, like mass and what else did you say, velocity or? Like, yeah, like mass and weight, just the idea of like things in real life move the way they do because they have you know, they weigh something, they're moving, you know, on earth with gravity. And when we're on screens, none of that stuff exists by default. But if we create animations that 
behave as if, you know, some of the real world things were on screen as well, they kind of feel more familiar. They feel more real because they move or, or act in ways that we might be familiar with, like that reminds us of real life, essentially. Even though we all know it's not really real, it's a kind of like suspension of disbelief or whatever they call it. <laughs> Did you start as a traditional animator, like cartoons and things like that, or...? Not exactly. I got into animation through a flash workshop years ago, and we were originally learning like how to do frame-by-frame frame animation with flash. And near the end of the workshop, I wanted to make something interactive because I heard flash could do that, and like I had no idea how. And the, you know, one of the last classes, the instructor was like, oh yeah, and there's this like kind of other side to Flash where you can write like programming stuff to make things move on screen. And that was sort of what got me started in the whole like interactive animation world. It was like, you can write like code things to make stuff move. Like, why did no one tell me this before? <laughs> I feel like that would have changed every math class I took before that point. And eventually Flash stop being so popular but why do you think that happened why why did it not remain popular well the short version of the story is that steve jobs killed flash that's not really what happened but it's a fun summary but essentially i mean flash just kind of outgrew its usefulness right like it came around at a time when browsers just were vastly different they took like years between updates and flash was this thing back when it first came out that was like the one way you could make sure an experience would be the same for someone no matter what browser they were using. Like it was a controlled environment before browsers were like, you would be making like three versions of a website because of all the, the browser differences, or you can make this thing in Flash, you'd know it was the same. All you'd have to do is have them download that player and you're good to go. So like back then and like them, I guess it would be early 2000s, like that sounded great. But over time, you know, web standards became more of a thing. Browsers actually started updating more frequently, and they started behaving more or less similarly compared to before. And then, of course, we had all these devices and all these mobile browsers, and Flash players couldn't keep up. So it just kind of like browsers got better enough that that gap that Flash was filling in just wasn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. And like you said, browsers began working together towards a standard and sharing this. Yeah, yeah way better than they did before. <laughs> okay. I feel like we can't say they work together too well, because I'm sure a lot of people would, have, would disagree with that. But they used to be much, much worse than they are now, back in the day. <laughs> yes. And of course, along that time, like, around the time Flash kind of fell out of favor. And it, honestly, it might have fallen out of favor a little prematurely technology-wise, because like jQuery and JavaScript weren't quite good enough to replace it. And there was kind of those maybe like a couple of years or so where like, You couldn't use Flash because it just wasn't supported everywhere. But if you wanted to animate things, you also couldn't use, you know, like web animation because it wasn't supported fully yet. But thankfully, we've moved past that. <laughs> yeah. Was this your first exposure to programming also through creating animations with Flash? Yeah, yeah. I'd never really done any programming before that. I think I tried a couple of times. Like I think as a kid, like my dad brought home like programming books, like program your own game because we had a computer at home. And it just never really, like me and my sister made them, we're like, eh, whatever, now we'll go do something else. <laughs> like I wasn't one of those people that was like, I discovered it when I was five and I never stopped. I'm like, I thought I didn't, you know, I had no, I don't know, I was off doing other things and I kind of rediscovered it then in university when I was like, oh my goodness, this is what you can do with programming? <laughs> and you've talked a lot about web animation as having more personality 
What makes web animation have personality? A lot of it is just the fact that, you know, it gives us that an additional dimension we don't have with like design in the sense that like, you know, we can use type and color and we can create space and hierarchy. We don't have a really a sense of time. We can't use time as a design element in any way until you actually animate things. So it gives us that that dimension of time we can work with that lets us like give people more informative feedback, kind of make things make you aware that things are happening, make you aware of like the spatial relationship between things. There's a lot of a lot of things we can do with design once we have that element of time and being able to like see these transitions or create these transitions as opposed to just being like screen one, hard cut to screen two. You know, when we have the ability to move between them and really think about how we move between them, we can say a lot more with our design that just wasn't possible before. And you've also mentioned that through these animations, a brand can even build more trustworthy with their users. Oh yeah, definitely. I think right around now, especially like having, if you think about the way like apps compared to websites, apps have had animated interfaces for a long time. Some of them are great and amazing. Some of them are completely terrible. But when we have websites, you know, that you want to maybe make feel kind of more sophisticated, more more like the things you find on your phone, maybe, if that's your judge of, of sophistication, which I know a lot of people's is, by adding animation to your interface as well, it can feel more like the things people are used to finding in apps on their phone. And maybe that's your metric for success of feeling or, or making your interface feel like sophisticated and modern. Like there's lots of other ways to do sophisticated and modern, but that's one way to do it and a really effective way. And now that you bring up the phone and that you said we try to take some things from there, but I'm wondering, is the overall design of animations for a website viewed on mobile different than for desktop? Because obviously there's less space, right, in the screen. Yeah, the, the, the different viewports, like the staging of the animation really changes, kind of in the way it changes for your layout and design too, right? You know, like the same way you might be like, oh, we have three columns on a really wide viewport and then we have to take it down to one. You know, sometimes you need to adapt your animations in the same way. You know, in some cases, if you have a lot of animation in a desktop view, like a really big viewport, it probably feels okay. And you're like, yeah, there's a lot of animation happening, but there's space for it all. If you took all that animation and squeezed it down into like a phone size viewport, suddenly that same animation could seem like way too much because it's just taking up so much more of that smaller viewport. So sometimes you have to adjust for that kind of thing. And sometimes you have to adjust things for, you know, just various devices performance. Sometimes that's a factor too, though that's becoming, as web animation becomes more performant and some of these older mobile operating systems kind of like are being used less and less, depending on your audience, it may not be as much of a concern as, as really depending on what your audience is using. But there's a lot of factors, I think, both on the technological side and kind of like the art direction side of like, if we just take this exact animation and shrink it down, does it still work? Like, does it still convey the thing it should convey? And that's not always the case when you're changing the size of the viewport. And under the hood, what is it like to support various devices and various screen sizes when coding these animations? If you're dealing with a responsive site, it can be anywhere from like super easy to really weird and hard. Like it depends a lot on what you're trying to do and what devices you're aiming for testing on. You know, like 
some basic things like CSS animation might be super performant across everything. And you might, depending on what you're doing, run into like one device that totally it's not performant on then. And if it's a device that's important to you, you're going to have to do something about that. So it really depends on the devices and what you're trying to do. I don't think there's any like, there's definitely cases where you're like, oh, that was great. It just went so smoothly. And there's other cases you're like, oh, things are terrible. And I think it, you know, it could go either way. (laughs) But in summary, it wouldn't be a hard thing to add support for different screen sizes, right? It would just be adding a range in CSS to specify which animation will trigger, right? Yeah, yeah. When it comes to just the viewport sizes, I think the part that becomes where the difficulty can come in is on the specific devices, because some, especially like older Android operating systems and browsers, like there's just not, the hardware just maybe can't run the things that say an iPhone can or a desktop can. So in the sense of just the viewport itself, fairly easy to adjust. Like you said, you can just use media queries and adjust the animations that you have based on the viewport size. The trickier part comes in with devices, which sometimes maybe goes really smoothly and other times might not. It really depends on what you're trying to get across. Yes. And this also depends on who you're trying to target, right? Maybe you don't want to support Android users because your target audience, you know, they use iPhone. Exactly. And sometimes you have like devices that are like you, you can't test on every possible device out there in the whole world or, you know, you would never, ever finish a project. So, you know, most of the time people have kind of maybe a short list of like, these are the devices that are important to us. It must work on these. Like you said, it might be the things that most of your audience uses or, you know, however else you decide. And depending on what that array of devices is, you might run into different things based on their, you know, how new their operating system is, how good of like hardware and stuff they have. So, you know, the the world of devices is a crazy, crazy place. It's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah. And you've done workshops on motion design. What does motion design mean in the web? What does it encompass? Motion design, I guess, for the web, it means a lot of the same things as it would for like just traditional motion design. And really, it's about, you know, designing the animations you create as opposed to just being like, oh, you know, I'll just move this from left to right or I'll just add a transition here, you know, of of taking it one step beyond and thinking, you know, designing that animation or that transition to be like, why is it moving this way? What should it be saying? How can I adjust like my timing and easing and other factors of my animation to make it say what I want it to say? Or more importantly, to like convey the same feeling and the same values as the rest of the visual design. You know, you could have a beautifully designed site with like beautiful colors and beautiful typography. But if you throw like some really thoughtless kind of clunky animation on top of that, it's going to feel really weird. So kind of taking a motion design view to that, you would want to create animations that, you know, had a similar feel to what that type and color conveys. So everything works together as opposed to it feeling like animation just got tossed on at the end and doesn't really fit together. Is motion design different depending on our target audience? For example, a web application for children versus teenagers, adults? I think your, your target of what you're going for, like the mood you're trying to convey, the message you're trying to convey changes based on your audience. But the tools you'd use to like craft your message, you know, like the, the timing of your animation, the easing you might choose, that kind of thing. Those tools to create that, like, that certain vibe or that certain feel don't change on your, based on your audience, but the end result of what you're going for would. So when iOS 7 update came out, I was 
getting very DC with the zoom in and zoom out animations for for opening and closing each app and switching between apps. And then I looked it up and several people were complaining about this. So there's definitely a, a danger of maybe over animating. What do you think we can do to prevent this from happening, to evaluate the effect of our animations? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the thing with iOS 7 was really that, like, they weren't animating a lot. They were just animating something very fast. And what appear, I mean, and a really great distance, but like distance and like air quotes, because it's on a screen and it's not a real distance, but the perceived distance based on the way they timed the animation was really, really, was really big. It was a very great, great amount of space that it was covering. There was someone that like broke down the physics of like how far and fast it was moving, if that was really a thing, if it really was like in physical space. So the one thing that comes like accessibility wise, and just, you know, that kind of consideration wise, it comes up with animation that we really didn't have to think about before was this idea of, you know, people who have a sensitivity to, you know, getting dizzy based on what they see on screen, people with vestibular disorders and other things like that, that we were never really able, could never really affect before. But now, especially with the kind of screens we have, even like the size of screens we have, you know, this can be a factor. So it's definitely something you want to to look out for. And like iOS 7, they did it afterwards. I don't think Apple really realized that might be a problem for people until after it happened either. But, you know, they've added in some controls into their operating system where you can, like, reduce animations. So if that motion does bother you because you have a sensitivity to that sort of visual behavior, you can turn it down or turn it off. And I think those kind of tools to, like, let users have control over those sorts of settings are going to be important on the web as well as we move forward. And there's definitely some work being done on figuring out how those might be created, you know, slowly cropping up here and there. But that is that is a thing you have to consider is like there's this sort of other aspect of, of motion that that can, you know, cause people discomfort or even worse, cause people actual harm. So you have to watch out for that as well. CSS is a language that we can use to create animations on the web. And you use this a lot. And what types of animations can we achieve using CSS? Surprisingly, a lot. Okay. <laughs> There's, for like practical purposes, I would say CSS is best at sort of very small UI animations, things like button hovers, you know, form field labels, maybe changing position, you know, slight rotations, that kind of thing. It does that super, super well. CSS is super performant at that stuff in browsers, and it's like already there. You know, it's pretty tough to make a website without using any CSS already. <laughs> so to write some animations in it is a fairly small step. When you get to having animations, like maybe you want to have like three or four animations, like play one right after the other, or kind of like create this more complex multiple movements or multiple animations, you know, like multiple fades and rotations and everything. At that point, once you have more than like maybe three or so that you want to have happen in succession, for your own sanity, it makes a lot more sense to move to a JavaScript animation solution because CSS just doesn't have the logic to track multiple animations, whereas JavaScript does. So once you get to those more complex animations, like things that have to be based on each other or work together, you, know, you need that extra bit of logic just to help keep that in control and make it stable, really. But you recommend starting out first with CSS and then... Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's... 
It's really impressive what CSS can do, especially for these like kind of smaller UI transitions and animations. And I'm always impressed with some of the things people can pull off with CSS. So I think it's a good one to explore first. And one of the properties that you've talked about in the past in CSS is easing, the ability to specify movement. And a talk that you gave about motion design in CSS, you discuss a more traditional approach to specify movement in CSS with CSS-specific properties like isin, isout, linear isin, isout. What does this enable you to express in terms of the motion with just these four properties? Well, those four properties, they're kind of like shortcuts to specific kinds of easing. And easing is like the timing function that's applied to your animation. So like how, like, for example, if you're moving like a box from left to right, you would say, go from this like place on the left, go to this place on the right. And the easing would describe how the speed changes might occur while it's moving from left to right. Like, does it all go in one speed? Does it speed up and slow down? Does it like accelerate into the motion? That's all controlled by easing. And CSS has like five keywords you can use for easing. So it has like ease in, ease out, ease in out, ease and linear. And that's kind of it. But we also have through CSS the ability to define our own cubic Bezier function. And that's what really opens up the world of easing for us in CSS. You know, there's a lot of editors, a lot of code editors have some cubic Bezier editing tools in them. Our browser dev tools have them now. And then there's also always like cubicbezier.com to go play around with them. But by creating your own curves, you can create animation that has expresses different things, or at least more depth or a wider range of things than you would with just those keywords. Because, you know, when you're like, oh, there's only five keywords, there's only five kinds of easing I can use. Huh, that's a pretty limited list. So when you go beyond those and try to look, create your own cubic Bezier curves, you can make things that are much more expressive and much more visually interesting. And I've heard about the Bezier function in other contexts. For example, animators at Pixar use it. So it sounds like it's a building block in animation, right? Yeah, like even there's various kinds of Bezier's and you know, kind of easing curves, but pretty much all animation software uses easing curves in some way or some kind of easing curve. They might not all be cubic Bezier curves like CSS has because there's plenty of other curves we can use, but it's really all based in like kind of that same that same approach or those same metaphors, which is nice because, you know, you start with cubic Bezier's in CSS and then maybe you can move on to some other other kinds of easing in, in different, like with JavaScript or different libraries or anything else. So it's like a good starting off point. And the cubic Bezier, like you said, adds more customizability to the movement of the object on the screen. Yep. Okay. You can create those kind of accelerations and decelerations and like make something feel like it's bouncing based on the easing that you use. Whereas if you just use one of the keywords, you might never be able to get that fine-tuned look. But if you use your own cubic Bezier's, you can make it just have a little bit more precision of what you want it to do. What is your workflow for doing a web animation for a UI? It depends a bit on the project and, and how big of a scope it is and how big the team is. If it's a really small team, rather, I tend to skip a lot of steps because you're just all working together or like at the same pace on the same things. But for maybe some bigger, more complex projects, I usually start with some kind of like sketching or storyboarding, preferably in some sort of like group context or meeting so like everyone can have some sort of say in like where animation might 
be useful for like specific user flows or specific tasks that are going to happen. You're kind of focusing on, at least in the beginning of like, where could animation provide some useful feedback or some useful like spatial awareness or, or all of those kinds of things that animation can be good at adding to an interface. From there, I might go on to creating some kind of motion comp or motion mock-up, essentially like in the same way you might like mock up a page layout and like sketch or Photoshop, you can kind of mock up an animation either in code or in After Effects or Flash or whatever you want to use just to kind of visually see what it might look like. Like that's the part where you can kind of dig into some of the easing and timing ideas and figure out like exactly what do I want this to look like and, and will it work? You know, and that can be done in code or visually, whichever makes the most sense for, for the end result. And then usually from there, I go into building some prototypes or sometimes I skip the motion comp step and just go straight from storyboards to prototyping, depending on, on what it is and, and what sort of animations are going to go in there. And prototyping is always the fun part because you can kind of, you know, create a little like just one small portion of the site or the app and just concentrate on like how the animation will work in that one area and, and really get to test it out because so much of UI animation, the success of it is based on how the animation feels to interact with. Like you were saying, you've run into a lot of sites that their animation feels broken and clunky, like that's not good. <laughs> and, you know, if you're really thinking about your animation and especially if you're prototyping it a little bit, you can make sure it doesn't feel clunky right? And then maybe if it does feel clunky, you will need to go back a step and rethink it. But if you find that out in a prototype as opposed to the final project, that'll save you some time. So and then somewhere between the storyboards, prototypes, then it kind of goes into, into production, which thankfully these days I'm not usually responsible for full out production code, which is nice. I usually get to hand off the prototypes at that point and they get, you know, properly merged into the, the production code base. I kind of like that part. Prototyping is my favorite part. So I don't mind handing it off after that. <laughs> and doing prototyping, you mentioned collaboration is important and getting feedback from other team members. How do you share the prototype? Is it a collaboration tool, for example, like Google Docs, where you can in real time see the progress? Usually just like I'll put something together that can be displayed in the browser and actually like bring it or bring a series of them to a meeting or a design critique and actually discuss them. If that's not possible, some people like links to stuff they can view in their browser, maybe do like a talk over, like chat about it over Skype or something. I think it's really important to, you know, share your work along the way as you're creating animations and, and get feedback along the way. Because if you're just like the designer off designing animations and you're like design silo, and then like right at the end of the project, you're like, hey, everyone, here's my animations. Like, that's a really tough sell, right? Like, no one saw them before. You're the only one that cares about them. And that's a really tough dynamic. But, you know, if you were getting feedback throughout your design process and you're talking to the developers and the strategy folks and the UX folks, and like everyone has some input on them, not only will the animations you, you end up with in your final design be better, but, you know, everyone feels like, like everyone's in support of them. Everyone's had some time to give their input on them. And it becomes a thing that's just part of the project as opposed to a thing that's like the designer thought of this on the weekend kind of thing. To do really good animation, you want it to be part of the design process, not just a thing that ends up on the end. And feedback and sharing your work along the way is a really great way to get that. Yeah. And I think this is also important to catch those cases where potentially somebody might feel dizzy or the animation. Yeah. 
So things like that. Yeah, and it's like with all design things, it's like you could be designing a thing and you're like really focused on it. You're thinking about all the details and you think you come up with this great solution and maybe it is a really great solution. But while you share it and get feedback, you find out those kind of like pain points or those failure points where maybe your design just needs a little bit more thought in certain areas to make it like more robust and, you know, more solid. You know, it's really hard to think of all of the possible things when you're just one person. Like, there's a reason we work in teams. Might as well take advantage yes, of it. Yes, definitely. <laughs> one aspect of animation can lead to poor performance. Oh, geez, definitely a few of them. I think, in, you know, we were talking about CSS before. For CSS, there's some properties that are very performant in most browsers, and there's some properties that are really unperformant in most browsers. If you were animating, say, a lot of like padding and margin, you might notice some pretty poor performance. But if you created those same animations using transforms and translates, you'd end up with something that's really performant. So sometimes the, the code you choose can make a really big difference and, and the properties you choose to animate can make a very big difference in the end performance. And those CSS properties are, the performance impact is the same whether you're animating them with CSS or with JavaScript. Like in the end, if you're manipulating these DOM elements, it often comes down to some CSS properties that are being changed. So your choice of how you build the animations can affect it. And also kind of, you know, just how much is going on at once, right? They kind of play into each other. If you have like one animation on your page that animates padding, that might be okay. You might not notice any performance hiccups for that. If you have like a hundred of them or even like 10 of them, maybe not even, you might not even need that many to notice it. And then you might notice that there's a problem. So a lot of it has to do with, you know, how they're built the properties you you animate and the volume of animation too. You know, like you can get away with one not so performant animation and maybe never notice, but you probably can't get away with 10 or some other larger number. Or some of those, you might not notice it because you're prototyping with few data. And if it depends on if data is populated through the user and then eventually... When you oh, definitely. Yeah. If you're just testing out one, but really there's going to be, yeah, like if you're just testing out for one user, but really there's going to be like 20 of them, that's going to make a big difference. <laughs> All the more reason to use real data, right? <laughs> yes, definitely. How do you evaluate and measure the impact of this animations? In what sense? Like the performance sense or like on... Like what do you use to measure this? Like dev tools or oh yeah, the performance you can you can do that in dev tools. One of the easiest ways to do it is to turn on oh, what is it called to show paint rectangles. I think is the ter is the item where it will show you a green box around everything that's being repainted. And if your animations all have a lot of green boxes around them, you're probably going to have a problem. There's also some really nice timeline like animation timeline tools in dev tools and Firefox especially. If you go into their animation tab, we'll give you a little like lightning icon to let you know if your animations are fully optimized. So you can kind of notice there, like if you don't have a lightning icon, it'll give you a little hint of like what you might be able to do to fix that. And there's also a really great site called CSS Triggers, which actually talks about exactly which steps in the browser rendering process each CSS property will affect. So you can look up the properties you're animating and see how they might impact performance. You probably wouldn't look up every single property you're animating, or maybe, you know, if you have a short list, maybe you would, but you can kind of help narrow down where the problems might be there. You know, if you see, like, if you're, like, from before I was talking about animating margin, 
you would see that, you know, margin affects paint in the rendering process and that's really expensive. So maybe you'd want to switch to something that doesn't. I wonder why they would still allow margin animation if it's a known property to cost performance. I think it's more just because, you know, that sort of thing falls on on the developer, the designer, right? Like browsers aren't going to, they're not going to police what you do with your code. They're giving you the tools to create things. If you decide to create something very unperformant, that's kind of on you. I mean, I prefer them to not be policing that. And maybe there's times where like you have no choice. The only way to create the effect you want is to animate padding. And maybe that's the only way you can get it done. So then you take the performance hit of that and you try to you know, improve the performance of other things to let that be okay. I like having that control, even if it means sometimes we're going to get some horribly animated sites. I'd rather have that control than have the browser stop me from doing it. Last question. What do you see evolving in the next five years in web animation? Oh, definitely a lot of things. I mean, it's changed so much in the last five years. I think we're going to see just as much change, if not more. I think browsers are going to get a heck of a lot faster at, you know, just doing JavaScript stuff, even CSS animation. I feel like there's going to be some performance improvements there just on the browser side of things. I think our authoring tools are going to get a lot better. Right now, There's it's, it's a little difficult to author web animation without coding it yourself. Like there's just this bottleneck you hit if you're letting something else output your code for you. I think we'll see some tools that'll help with that. The web animation API is being worked on right now. And I think that will become more of a thing in the next few years. And then also things like the VR world, like virtual reality things, like that's coming to browsers. I mean, in some sense, it's in browsers already, but I feel like in the next five years, that is going to be become more of a thing. I'm not sure if anyone's really figured out what we're going to do with VR on the web yet, but like, it's definitely a thing. <laughs> I hadn't heard about that. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, you should check out A-Frame. It's kind of this, I guess, sort of like editing tool slash polyfill thing. I'm maybe describing it wrong, but it lets you try out some VR stuff in your browser. It's pretty amazing. And all the VR stuff I've tried, like non-browser stuff, it's incredibly impressive how easy it is to use. So I still haven't figured out what we're going to do with it, but I, I can't imagine it's, I mean, I think it's around for a while now. I think we're going we're gonna to come up with something good. So I think there's a lot of changes, a lot of new tools, a lot of new places where animation can be used and, and can be useful. And just the web changes so fast. It'll, it should be an exciting next five years, if nothing else. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Val, thank you for coming on the show. It was great talking to you today. Thanks so much for having me. 